As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello again, fellow Flyers. Welcome to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer, and this is our 12th episode of Plane Crash Podcast. We're officially at a dozen. Thanks to all of you out there that have been listening to the show, sending in reviews to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your encouraging words are the fuel that drives us to keep on working hard and cranking out the new episodes. Sometimes I'm down in the dumps and then a new positive review pops up and I say to myself, Michael, it's time to get busy. The people of planet Earth are depending on you. And then I just start researching a new accident. So if you haven't reviewed the show yet, please do so. We will love you for it forever and ever. If you want to follow or communicate with us online, we are on Twitter at Plane Crash Pod. That's Plane Crash Pod. Say hello. Send us a suggestion for a future episode. On today's episode, we will be taking a look at Air New Zealand, Flight 901, a scheduled sightseeing flight to Antarctica that departed Auckland, New Zealand on November 28, 1979. Joining us on the podcast today is everyone's favorite podcast producer and an all-around kind human being, Tess Andrade. Say hello to the people, Tess. Hello to the people, Tess. How do you feel about it being November already? Uh, really good. I love fall. Are you amped up for Thanksgiving? Oh, yeah. Very amped. Are you? I, I Thanksgiving's my favorite holiday. I feel oh, like there's yeah. no stress around Thanksgiving. It's eat some food, hang out with family, take a nap on the couch. Yeah. Low like, stakes. I feel like Christmas time is all about buying gifts and spending money and feeling stress. Thanksgiving's just easy. Yeah, it's kind of less of a consumerist holiday, I guess. It's just about eating food and hanging out. Who doesn't like that? Um, so we're now at 12 episodes. Do you think if we stopped a random person on the street and offered them a choice between a dozen episodes of the Plane Crash podcast or a dozen glazed donuts, which do you think they're going to select? <laughs> um, oh, man, that's a tough one. It's a toss-up, honestly. What kind of... Oh, you said they were glazed? Yeah, just regular glazed. Uh, it's. I'd have to go with the episodes. I think they'd want more apps. I hope you're right. I'm hoping we just stop a health nut with an interest in how the commercial aviation industry has changed over the years. But yeah, <laughs> you know, I bet a random person's probably just going to go with donuts. <sighs> They're lost. They're lost. I don't want to give too much away about today's episode before we start, but I'll say that it's about a sightseeing flight, a flight where the plan is to take off from a town fly around for 12 hours, see the ground below, and land back in that town. Uh, do you have any interest in doing something like that? Absolutely not. Yeah, why not? Uh, it's all about the destination for me. I, um, I, I can't imagine just flying around in a plane and not getting off when you get to that 
your final destination. Even if they had good food and a comfortable environment and drinks and pleasant people that you're hanging out with, you're just not into that kind of thing? I, that would make it easier, but um, still not really sold on the idea. Yeah. How about like something like space flights, like Virgin Galactic? Go up and you know you get to go to space and look back and see the planet out the window. Does that appeal to you in any way? Um, you're probably going to be surprised by this, but absolutely no desire to go to space. I think it would be cool. I mean, I, I get nervous about a ton of things, but I feel like if I could get on that plane and go up and see planet Earth and realize that everything that's ever happened just happened on this tiny little ball, I think that would be, you know, awe-inspiring and possibly life-changing. Totally. Yeah, I think it would be incredible, too. I, I feel like I'm just not really ready for that dose of perspective. Yeah, I'd say bring on the dose. Bring on the heavy dose for me. <laughs> I like to just like hole up at home and kind of not really lose perspective on my life and not really understand what it's all about. Can't really join you on that trip, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I would make the space flight. I would like to see planet Earth. I would like to see what it's like to be in zero G. I'd be nervous the whole time. I'd probably, you know, need some medication or something, but I think uh, I would I would sign up for it if it was accessible to me. I like to mention at the top of every episode that I'm not a pilot. I didn't go to aviation school or get a degree in aeronautical engineering. I'm just a guy that's always been a nervous flyer. And this podcast is a way of addressing my fears and trying to learn a little more about this area that I've been afraid of. We realize that what we're talking about here is a tragedy in the lives of many human beings out there. We in no way want to be disrespectful or inconsiderate of that fact we just find plane accidents to be historical events that are worth discussing. It's interesting to us how safe it is to fly today. And why is flying so safe today? Because of all the accidents of the past. Through these accidents of the past, we've learned painful lessons that have changed the way we manufacture planes and changed the way we teach pilots to fly. These changes after each accident have built air travel into the incredibly safe system that exists today. We have something on the podcast today that we've never had before. We have our first sponsor. We're really excited to announce that we have the support of BetterHelp. What is BetterHelp? BetterHelp is the world's largest counseling service. For listeners of the podcast, I've talked a lot about my feelings of anxiety I get when I'm flying. But the truth is, I don't just get anxious when I'm up in the air. It's something I deal with in my day-to-day -day life. Anyone who's ever had anxiety knows it's one of those all-consuming feelings that makes it difficult to do just about anything. But for me, I've learned there are certain things I need in order to put my best foot forward, and therapy is one of those things. BetterHelp will provide you with a detailed questionnaire and match you with your own counselor from their network of certified therapists. You can communicate with your counselor in under 24 hours via video or phone sessions, BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional therapy, and you're not limited to conventional hours like 9 to 5. You can use the service from the comfort of your own home and skip traffic. Our producer, Tess, has been using BetterHelp, and she's been telling me how impressed she is by the whole process. Isn't that right, Tess? Yeah, I really love my counselor, and I was struck by how attentive and compassionate she was, so I'm really excited. Nice. Plane Crash podcast listeners get 10% off their first month if you go to BetterHelp.com dot com slash plane crash pod that's better help and help is h-e-l-p so betterhelp.com slash plane crash pod thanks guys you ready to get started tess yep let's go air new zealand flight 901 was a scheduled 11 hour sightseeing flight to antarctica that departed auckland new zealand on the morning of november 28th 1979 the captain of flight 901 was thomas james collins Known to his colleagues as Jim, he was 45 years old at the time. He was the father of four daughters and had a wife named Maria. Captain Jim Collins had 11,151 flying hours, 2,872 hours on the DC-10. His first officer was Gregory Casson. Greg Casson was 37 years old. He had 7,934 flying hours, 1,361 hours on DC-10s. There were two flight engineers on Air New Zealand Flight 901 that changed shift mid-flight. Flight engineer Gordon Barrett Brooks had 10,886 flying hours, 3,000 on the DC-10. He had been a qualified flight engineer for almost 22 years. And the other flight engineer was Nicholas John Maloney. 
with 6,468 flight hours, 1,700 on DC-10s, and he had been a flight engineer for over 12 years. So overall, this is a very experienced flight crew. The plane, as we've mentioned, was a DC-10. For those of you that have listened to our previous episodes, this is the same type of plane as the United Airlines Flight 232 that lost all its flight controls above Iowa, and the same as Western Airlines Flight 2605 with Eduardo Valenciano on board. This particular plane was the 182nd DC-10 to be built by McDonnell Douglas in Long Beach, California. It was constructed in November of 74 and was delivered to Air New Zealand on December 14, 1974. So in November 1979, this plane is only five years old. This plane was the fourth DC-10 to be added to the Air New Zealand fleet. Air New Zealand eventually had eight DC-10s in its fleet, and this was number four. The plane had 20,763 total flight hours over the five years that had been flown by the airline. Flight 901 had 237 passengers, a total flight crew of 20, which consisted of a captain, two first officers, two flight engineers, and 15 flight attendants for a total of 257 human beings on board. There was another first officer on board named Graham Lucas that was there to provide extra manpower for the long flight, but he wasn't on the flight deck during the incident. So what was the idea behind this flight? Why did it exist? What was the attraction that drew passengers in and made them want to be on this plane? Well, the same way you might go on a whale-watching boat tour in Alaska or take a sightseeing bus ride through a historic city to see landmarks, Air New Zealand decided in the 1970s that they wanted to start offering a sightseeing flight to Antarctica. Originally, they had brainstormed the possibility of constructing a terminal in Antarctica, where planes could land and refuel. But after considering the cost of getting staff and fuel down to the frozen continent, the idea was shelved as too expensive and impractical. However, once the DC-10 came along in the mid-1970s, Air New Zealand decided that the planes didn't have to land anymore. These DC-10 planes can now fly 11, 12 hours without having to refuel. So the plan became to market sightseeing flights that would depart from Auckland, New Zealand early in the morning, fly down to Antarctica, descend in altitude so passengers could get a better view of the icy landscape, maybe see a few penguins or glaciers. They can take some photos from their window, and then eventually the plane would fly back to New Zealand that night. It's a sightseeing plane trip that takes an entire day. The journey is truly the destination on these flights. Air New Zealand put out a travel brochure called the Antarctic Experience, which had numerous pictures of the snowy peaks of Antarctica and photos of people inside a passenger cabin of a plane peering out their windows, enthralled with the view of this rarely seen and remote place. The brochure stated, The DC-10 passenger has warmth and even luxury as he looks down on a beautiful but harsh terrain, which cruelly tested the hardihood of the first explorers. He cruises in minutes over areas which took men desperate and trying days and weeks to traverse in the early century. So these flights are being sold as a unique and cutting-edge experience at the time. Look what humanity can do. We can finally see Antarctica from the comfort of a plane and do it in only 11 hours. Another Air New Zealand ad in a newspaper from 1977 announced that there would be five flights in the fall of 77 and that they were to be sold on a first-come, first-served basis. Prospective passengers should act now to avoid disappointment. So these sightseeing flights are luxurious trips with a cocktail party atmosphere. Lobster and caviar being served. Champagne is flowing through the cabin. There's a complimentary bar. You'd probably like that feature, eh, Tess? Absolutely. So Air New Zealand intentionally leaves 21 seats unsold as well. So there's less people on the plane. Moving about the passenger cabin, taking a peek out different windows is easier for people. Another feature of these flights is that there's an onboard tour guide. Speaking over the PA, pointing out landmarks and geographical points of significance to the passengers on board. Sir Edmund Hillary, the first mountain climber to reach the summit of Mount Everest, which he accomplished in 1953, was often one of these tour guides on these Air New Zealand flights. 
He was scheduled to be the tour guide on Flight 901, but because of other commitments, he canceled, and his climbing partner, Peter Mulgrew, took his place. So Flight 901 takes off from Auckland, New Zealand at 8.17 a.m. on November 28, 1979. The plan is to fly down towards Antarctica, fly over several points of interest for sightseers, spend most of the day gliding around so passengers can eat and drink and see the terrain. Then eventually, Flight 901 is going to fly back to New Zealand and land at Christchurch on the southern island of New Zealand around 7 p.m. In Christchurch, there would be a flight crew change, time to refuel, and then eventually the plane would take off and fly from Christchurch back to Auckland, arriving at 9 p.m., a 13-hour journey from Auckland down over Antarctica and back to Auckland. It's a normal flight for the first five hours. It's the plane flies at 33,000 feet over the Auckland Islands, then the Balany Islands, and Cape Hollett. Three films are shown on board. Lunch is being prepared by the flight attendants. And at five hours and one minute into the flight, First Officer Greg Casson radios over to McMurdo Meteorological Office, requesting a report on the conditions in the McMurdo Sound area. McMurdo Sound is an area of frozen ice on top of the sea next to Ross Island in Antarctica. McMurdo Station is a research station on the southern tip of Ross Island. There's a tower there that the pilots can communicate with about weather conditions and get permission to fly at various altitudes. The tower at McMurdo replies to the first officer's inquiry about conditions. If you have copied our latest weather, we have a low overcast in the area at about 2,000 feet. And right now we're having some snow, but our visibility is still about 40 miles. And if you would like, I can give you an update on where the clear areas are around the local area. So the guy in the tower at McMurdo tells Flight 901 that there's cloud cover hovering at 2,000 feet. Inside the cockpit, Flight Engineer Maloney says, got a low overcast over McMurdo. And Captain Collins says, doesn't look very promising, does it? First Officer Casson and the Flight Engineer Maloney both reply no. So the whole point of this flight is to let the passengers see sights out the window. The flight crew realizes that there's this cloud cover over McMurdo Sound all the way down to 2,000 feet. This is a disappointment to them because they want to be able to find something to show their passengers other than the top of a cloud layer. They didn't want to fly five hours to Antarctica and say to their passengers, hey, check out the top of these clouds over Antarctica. Isn't that great? The passengers want to see penguins, an icy snowy land, so they can come back and brag to all their friends how they saw the ground of Antarctica with their very own eyes. A minute later, the tower at McMurdo Station says, Within a range of 40 miles of McMurdo, we have a radar that will, if you desire, we can let you down to 1,500 feet on radar vectors over. So the tower is telling Flight 901, Hey, since this cloud layer is blocking your view at 2,000 feet, we have a radar, and we can let you down to 1,500 feet below the clouds so you can show your passengers the Antarctic ground. Captain Collins says in the cockpit, that's what we want. And the plane begins a gradual descent down from 33,000 feet. An announcement is made over the PA. Gents, we're going initially to 18,000, and the cloud cover in the McMurdo area has increased. Although the visibility is 40 kilometers, so ground visibility is good, and we will be taking advantage of the radar facilities at McMurdo for letdown, which should take us below cloud and give us a view of the McMurdo area. That is always likely to change, of course, depending on any variations in the weather, but we're hopeful we'll be able to give you a look at McMurdo today. Thank you. Over the next several minutes, Captain Collins and First Officer Casson attempt to contact the tower at McMurdo Station to no avail. They try a number of different frequencies to communicate with the tower and they get no response. Finally, after almost 12 minutes of trying to radio over to the tower, they finally get through. The pilots have noticed a break in the clouds, and they can see chunks of ice in the sea below. First Officer Casson asks McMurdo Tower, We'd like further descent, or we could orbit in our present position, which is approximately 43 miles north, descending VMC. The tower replies, Roger Kiwi, New Zealand 901. VMC descent is approved, and keep Max Center advised of your altitude. VMC stands for Visual Meteorological Conditions. 
So the pilots are saying to the tower, we can see outside our plane and can use our own eyes to maintain separation between the ground and the plane or the plane and other air traffic. They want to descend using visual flight rules and the tower gives them the go ahead. It's now five hours and 15 minutes into the flight. So flight 901 starts its descent below 18,000 feet. Flight engineer Brooks says, we are descending below cloud now, so better photograph soon. As the plane is descending, Flight 901 is making a large circle, a complete 360 while decreasing in altitude. Two minutes after the VMC descent begins, the captain says over the PA system, Captain again, ladies and gentlemen, we're carrying out an orbit and circling our present position, and we'll be descending to an altitude below clouds so that we can proceed to McMurdo's sound. Thank you. So this is a telling comment by Captain Collins. His plan for the plane, in his mind, is getting below cloud cover so they can see McMurdo's sound, that icy top to the sea. The captain has the expectation that Flight 901 is headed for McMurdo's sound. Again, the cockpit has difficulty getting in touch over the radio with the tower at McMurdo Station. The plane finally levels out at 10,000 feet, 5 hours and 20 minutes into the flight. For a brief moment, they get a hold of the tower at McMurdo and get permission to continue their VMC descent over what they believe to be McMurdo's sound. Flight 901 does a 180-degree turn as it goes lower in altitude and flies back in the direction of New Zealand for a few minutes before doing another 180-degree turn to go back in the direction of what they believe is McMurdo's sound. The tour guide, Peter Mulgrew, enters the cockpit and says, Ah, well, you can't talk if you can't see anything. He's explaining why he hasn't been narrating the trip over the PA in recent minutes. First Officer Casson radios over to McMurdo Tower. We're now at 6,000 and descending to 2,000 VMC. Captain Collins comments that he got a message about weather conditions and visibility in the Taylor Valley and the Wright Valley of Antarctica. Both are clear with high visibility. He asked Peter Mulgrew for help getting over there later after they check out McMurdo's sound. Peter Mulgrew replies, no trouble. Mulgrew again gets on the PA and says, this is Peter Mulgrew speaking again, folks. I can't see very much at the moment. Keep you informed as soon as I see something that gives me a clue as to where we are. We're going down in altitude now, and it won't be long before we get quite a good view. So at this time, Flight 901 is still descending, trying to get to 2,000 feet, headed towards what they think is McMurdo's sound. Flight Engineer Brooks asks as the plane's descending through 3,000 feet, where is Mount Erebus in relation to us at the moment? It's unknown who responds, but someone says, left about 20 or 25 miles. Well, I don't know. I think. I've been looking for it. Brooks says, I'm just thinking of any high ground in the area, that's all. Mount Erebus is an active volcano that sits at almost 12,500 feet above sea level on Ross Island. Its name was taken from Greek mythology from a god born of chaos. In ancient Greek, Erebus is translated as darkness or covered. Another minute passes and Captain Collins says, we might have to pop down to 1,500 feet here, I think. First Officer Casson says, yes, okay, probably see further in anyway. The men in the cockpit then try to find reference points out the cockpit window that can help place them where they are exactly. Peter Mulgrew says, I reckon birds through here, in reference to Mount Bird, and Ross Island there, Erebus should be here. Captain Collins says, right. For about 30 seconds, the conversation turns to radio frequencies again. Peter Mulgrew comments, that looks like the edge of Ross Island there. Flight engineer Maloney says, I don't like this. A few seconds later, Captain Collins says, we're 26 miles north. We'll have to climb out of this. His first officer responds, it's clear on the right and ahead. Collins asks, is it? The first officer, Casson, replies, yes, you're clear to turn on the right. There's no high ground if you do a 180. At five hours and 32 minutes into the flight, the ground proximity warning system is heard. Whoop, whoop, pull up. Whoop, whoop, pull up, and this fills the cockpit. Flight engineer Brooks calls out the altitude, 500 feet, 400 feet. Captain Collins quickly asks, go around power, please, but it's too late for Flight 901 to climb in altitude. Five hours and 33 minutes into the flight, Air New Zealand Flight 901 slams into the slope of the 12,448-foot Mount Erebus, 
making impact at an altitude of 1,467 feet. The plane exploded on impact, and all 257 human beings on board were killed instantly. So what the hell happened? How did a cockpit full of intelligent, fully capable pilots in a state-of-the-art, fully functional plane unknowingly slam into the side of an active volcano in Antarctica? Well, to answer this question, we should first go back two years to 1977. In 1977, the Civil Aviation Division of the New Zealand Department of Transport approves the flight plan for Air New Zealand's Antarctic flights. The approved flight plan from 1977 includes a number of waypoints or checkpoints in the sky that each flight will hit along its trek to the frozen continent and back. The flight plan starts in Auckland, then hits the Auckland Islands, eventually Cape Hollett, and finally McMurdo Station. This final waypoint at McMurdo is where a problem arises. A typing error was made by the navigation section at Air New Zealand when inputting the information into a new ground computer a year later in 1978. Instead of putting in the approved McMurdo waypoint of 166 degrees 58 minutes, which would take planes directly over the 12,448-foot Mount Erebus, an incorrect waypoint of 164 degrees and 48 minutes was inputted into the flight plan. This took planes down through McMurdo Sound, that ice-covered sea 26 miles west of Mount Erebus on Ross Island. So what did this do? Well, for the previous year, on Air New Zealand's sightseeing flights to Antarctica, pilots flew over McMurdo Sound and often dropped down in altitude close to the ground so their passengers could take pictures and get a great view outside their window. Flights could fly at a low altitude because they weren't flying over a 13,000-foot volcano. They were flying over a frozen sea, and if they flew at 1,500 feet, they weren't going to be running into any terrain. 19 days before Flight 901 takes off, Captain Jim Collins and First Officer Greg Casson attend a briefing where they're given the flight plan for Flight 901. The flight plan shows them taking off from Auckland, heading the Auckland Islands, Cape Hollett, and then flying over McMurdo Sound. So they're expecting on Flight 901 to fly over McMurdo Sound, not to be flying over Mount Erebus. This briefing that Captain Collins and First Officer Casson attended was on November 9th. On November 14th, another Air New Zealand pilot, Captain Leslie Simpson, is the pilot for a sightseeing flight to Antarctica, and he finally picks up on the input air from 1978. He notifies the navigation section at Air New Zealand of the air, and at 1.40 a.m. on November 28th, just seven hours before Flight 901 takes off, the navigation section at Air New Zealand decides to correct this mistake in the computer. But they failed to inform the flight crew of Flight 901 that this correction has been made. Now, the navigation system is set up to put Flight 901 26 miles to the east from the prior flight plan, directly over Mount Erebus, instead of flying down over McMurdo Sound, as the pilots were told was going to happen at their briefing 19 days earlier. Captain Collins spent the night before his flight with his daughters, showing them his flight plan on a map, and how he was going to be flying over McMurdo Sound and around Ross Island. Passengers on Flight 901 were given out complimentary maps of their journey that showed their trek going over McMurdo Sound to the west of Ross Island. The navigation section made this change to McMurdo Waypoint and then failed to tell the flight crew of the change. So the flight crew is expecting all along that their path's going to take them over McMurdo Sound. When they descend to 1,500 feet, they don't see a danger in doing so because they think they're flying over frozen water. They don't think they're headed straight into the slope of a 12,000-foot volcano. So now that we understand why the pilots were confused about where they were and why they flew down to 2,000 feet and didn't expect it to be a dangerous move, we should ask, why didn't they see this huge volcano in front of them? Some people initially suggested that they were flying in the clouds and couldn't see through the clouds. But film was developed from passengers in the cabin that snapped photographs outside the window seconds before the crash, and the pictures show that visibility was not an issue. The plane wasn't stuck in the clouds. 
What is most theorized is that the cockpit was experiencing an optical illusion known as sector whiteout. When Flight 901 pulls below the clouds on its final descent, the pilots looked out the cockpit window and they saw exactly what they were expecting to see. They were expecting to see an expansive area of white ice. They were expecting to see the frozen top of McMurdo Sound that would stretch on for miles in the distance. Flight 901 pulls below the clouds and the pilots see nothing but white. White clouds above them, white snow below them. They can't tell that the white that they see in front of them is actually a volcano covered with snow. They couldn't see any dark colored rocks or trees or land features that would provide them with a sense of depth or the notion that they were what they were staring at was actually a volcano at a high elevation that would be a danger to the plane. Instead, all they saw was white, and they thought that this was the expansive Ross ice shelf that stretched to the horizon, which is what they expected to see flying over McMurdo Sound. The recovery effort was nicknamed Operation Overdue, and it lasted until December 9, 1979. Recovery workers endured the hardships of the climate and worked 12-hour shifts, sleeping in tents, covered in grime with no running water or bathrooms. It was bitter, bitter cold, and they stuck it out in order to round up the remains of those that died on Flight 901 so that the victim's family members could have peace. One of the most widely discussed aspects of the crash of Flight 901 was the ensuing investigation. Six and a half months after the crash, the first report known as the Chippendale Report, named after Ron Chippendale, the chief inspector of air accidents for New Zealand, was released. In the report, the cause of the crash was determined to be pilot error. The report said that the pilots went below the established minimums, thus putting the plane in a dangerous position. Official airline policy was to never go below 16,000 feet, but the pilots on these flights seemed to break this rule regularly. The brochures that Air New Zealand printed out showed pictures of the ground from a low altitude, well below 16,000 feet, so it seemed a little disingenuous of the airline to say, hey, this is our rule, we never go below 16,000 feet, but here's advertisements that we've been putting out showing our planes flying well below 16,000 feet. Something about that story in the first investigation didn't really add up in the public eye. In any event, the first report levied the blame solely on the pilots and let the airline off the hook. Public outcry in New Zealand caused a second report to be written by a judge, Judge Peter Mann. His report was released in April of 81, and he said the biggest cause of the crash of Flight 901 was the airline's choice to update the McMurdo Waypoint, thus changing the flight plan that the flight crew was briefed on 19 days before the crash and never informing the flight crew of that change. Mann also mentioned the sector whiteout theory that we discussed earlier. Judge Mann goes on to accuse Air New Zealand of a conspiracy to hide the facts surrounding the crash. There were reports that Captain Collins' house was broken into, and his flight diary was taken, as were other documents related to the crash, while jewelry and valuables were left behind in the house. It was accused that Captain Collins' flight documents were recovered from the crash site and hidden. One of his diaries that he kept flight notes and details in was recovered, but only the outer cover of the diary, all the pages inside, were gone. The wife of the first officer said that her late husband's handwritten briefing notes were taken from her home by the airline and never returned. The airline said the documents were destroyed because they had irrelevant information on them. After the second report came out, the CEO of Air New Zealand resigned. Ah, yes. Destroy documents with irrelevant information. Really convenient. Seems kind of fishy. The crash of Air New Zealand Flight 901 is still the worst crash in the history of New Zealand aviation. Much of the wreckage was left behind on Mount Erebus and is still present today. So how did the crash of Air New Zealand Flight 901 make flying safer? Well, thanks to the research of Air New Zealand pilot Gordon Vetti, major strides were made in the way that air accidents are investigated. Vetti introduced ideas and phrases like human factors and organizational accidents into the language that air accident investigators use to understand and explain accidents. He showed that several organizational failures could add up to a horrible accident. And this awareness became heightened in the airline industry, decreasing the chances of a failure like Flight 901 from happening again. 
Secondly, he also pushed for the development of new technologies that would enhance ground proximity warning systems so pilots have more time to react. On Flight 901, the cockpit only had six seconds to react. The warning went off six seconds before they impacted the terrain. That wasn't enough time to react and save the flight. Enhanced ground proximity warning systems and terrain awareness and warning systems were developed in the 1990s and installed on most commercial planes, aided by the research of Gordon Vetti and the lessons learned from Air New Zealand Flight 901. Vetti went on to write a book called Impact Erebus and was lauded as a hero in the aviation industry thanks to his work in developing systems to help make commercial flying safer in the decades that followed the crash of Flight 901. So Tess, do you have any thoughts or comments you'd like to make? Um, What were you thinking about when I was telling you the story of Flight 901? Well, it was a really interesting story, and thank you so much for sharing it. Um, I did have one question as you were talking through it. It seemed like the guys in the cockpit kind of had a sense that something was fishy, that something Mm -hmm. was a little off before the alert went off. And Mm -hmm. I was wondering what you thought about that. What do you think clued them in that, that something was off? Were you referring to when the flight engineer says, I don't like this? Yeah, exactly. Then the first officer is like, oh, you can pull out your clear on the right here. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know that we have a conclusive answer to that. I would imagine maybe they got a sense that, uh, you know, the clouds were still hanging around. They couldn't see that well. I think they, it was probably very unsettling to see nothing but white. Right. And I think initially they kind of expected to see that, as it was explained with the sector whiteout theory. That they, you know, saw white and were like, oh, we're going to fly in over this ice shelf and there must be clouds above us. I think after it lasted a while, they start to feel kind of weird, you know, and the fact that they couldn't talk to anybody. I think they, there was probably an unsettling feeling in the cockpit. And it seems like that also wasn't a lot of time. You know, it seems like the flight engineer says, I don't like this. Captain says, we're going to have to climb out of this. And then all of a sudden the ground proximity warning goes off. I think all that happened very quickly. Right, yeah, and the fact that it it only went off for six seconds before they made impact is is pretty terrifying. Yeah, they didn't have a lot of time to react. I mean, if they had, you know, another 15 seconds, let's say that alarm had gone off 21 seconds, they probably could have pulled up, you know. Right. So I think that's one of the lessons of why this crash made flying safer is that that Air New Zealand pilot, Gordon Vetti, push for technologies saying six seconds isn't enough time. We need to have like an enhanced ground proximity warning system that's going to give people more time to react. Because these guys, if they had a little bit more time to react, they probably could have pulled out of it. Right. Yeah, definitely. Another thing that I thought was interesting and very of the time period was that the airline had this rule that they weren't really following up in the sky. Mm -hmm. It seemed like kind of just a way to cover their bases. You know, A, it was probably something they had to set to appease the Department of Transport in New Zealand, but it also seemed like they used it as an excuse during the investigation. It seemed like the, the airline's behavior during the investigation was bad. It was right. awful. That they, they didn't stand behind their pilots and thro- tried to throw these pilots under the bus. They were like, oh, we have minimums of 16,000 feet, but we also put out brochures showing people looking out a window, looking at terrain, and the plane is clearly well below 16,000 feet. Right. I think they just used that as a way to try and save their own hide. Yeah. I, I thought the whole break-ins and was an in, interesting and kind of sinister twist in the story. What did you think? Definitely. Yeah, that seems so maniacal that they actually were ripping out diary pages and trying to rewrite the past. Yeah, I feel like they basically were just concerned about what hit is this going to take to the company? You know, they didn't care about saving the reputations of the, those pilots. They were like, hey, they're gone. They can't defend themselves. Let's just blame everything on them. It also seemed to me like if somebody broke in the captain's house and stole documents and left jewelry, that makes no sense that that would be anyone other than the airline. Like oh, yeah, definitely. What burglar would go in and say, hey, I really want these documents. You know, it's like you have jewelry, you have valuables, you could have taken those. That seemed kind of like an upsetting twist in there. So when they changed the waypoint, um, Did they just forget to tell the flight crew or what happened there? I guess there was some lack of communications, obviously some failure in the chain of communication. Um, I thought it was strange that they changed it seven hours before the flight. You know, it seems like they should have put 
a bulletin out to the flight crew saying, this is a big change we made seven hours ago at 1.40 a.m. And they didn't tell them. Obviously, if you, um, from listening to the story, you can tell that the pilots expected the entire time to be flying over McMurdo Sound. One interesting thing I thought was there was a point where the flight engineer said, do you know where Mount Erebus is right now? I'm just thinking of any high ground out here. He seemed to be the only one on the entire story that really kind of put it together for a moment. And I don't think he had a sense that they were going towards Mount Erebus. He was probably just thinking, we can't see well, and we just want to really make sure that we're not running into this. We're in the general vicinity. Yeah, might as well be cognizant of any high ground out here. Yeah, I thought that was interesting too. I thought there was also like, this is the pre-GPS era, you know, of flight. And these guys clearly didn't know exactly where they were. Flying must have been so much more difficult than to not know where you're at exactly. Oh, yeah. Have to depend on your eyes or some sort of radar. I think I read that the radar system that DC-10s had could only detect moisture and that all the snow was really dry on the volcano. So it didn't show up on their radar at all. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of the stories you've told me, it seems like a lot of things just went wrong at the same time and added up to this crash. Yeah, I feel like that's always what a lot of people that study plane crashes say, is that it's always a chain of events. It's not just one thing. It's many things that added up to this highly improbable thing of happening. First, you had the waypoint error. Then there's the correcting of the waypoint and failing to tell the flight crew Then there's cloud cover that day that obscures the view. If they just didn't have clouds up in the sky, maybe they could have, you know, seen the ground below. Right, yeah. If they had had less cloud cover, would they have probably seen Mount Erebus and been able to... Yeah, definitely. ...visually identify... Yeah, maybe if they... Yeah, if they didn't have the as much cloud cover. They probably wouldn't have had that whole sector whiteout thing happen where they come below the clouds and everything's completely white. Right. They had no cloud covers. Maybe they would have seen this volcano up against the sky have you ever had the experience of flying really close over mountains before i have not have you i have yeah it's it's really scary what was the uh circumstance the flight was out of la paz and i could be wrong but i remember someone telling me that it's one of the most dangerous airports to fly out of because Mm -hmm. you have to ascend really quickly out of um this mountainous area because the city is surrounded by mountains Mm -hmm. i just remember that it felt like we were just grazing the tops of the mountains it felt like we were really close to them and i was quite quite nervous Uh, doesn't sound pleasant i don't think i want to fly out of la paz anytime soon uh november 28th 2019 will be the 40th anniversary of the crash of flight 901 one of the hardest aspects of researching this uh crash was I watched an interview with Captain Collins' wife, Maria, and when she was re- recently interviewed, and she, when she asked about, um, when she was asked about the crash and Captain Collins, she just said, I still miss him. I still think about him. And it just was like mm. a punch in the stomach just to see this for 40 years. She's still thinking about this good guy. He didn't do anything wrong, in my opinion. I don't think this was pilot error. I think he was a victim of circumstance. He was told, you're going to fly this way, and you're going to go over McMurdo Sound, and you better these people want to go sightseeing, so you better get them to see some stuff. And the clouds are at 2,000 feet. You know, That's another aspect. What if the clouds were at 6,000 feet that day, or 8,000 feet? You know, mm-hmm. what, what if they could have gotten down low enough that that people could have seen things but been high enough to you know see more of the terrain so that right, was yeah they didn't it, it's like they were given a faulty map yeah they were definitely given a faulty map everybody in the cabin had a complimentary map showing the flight plan that did not go over mount erebus it just went through mcmurdo sound so it was a sad story but we did glean some lessons from this crash that made flying safer for us today and uh, we thank those people for their sacrifice and uh, it's coming up on the 40th anniversary so um, I think this crash is getting a lot of coverage there's some uh, tidbits in the world of aviation would you like to hear them test oh yes please on October 5th 2019 Delta Airlines flew 120 girls between the ages of 12 to 18 from Salt Lake City, Utah to Houston, Texas, 
so they could visit NASA's Johnson Space Center for International Girls in Aviation Day. Oh, I knew I liked Delta. Every aspect of the flight was controlled by females. It was an all-female flight crew. Yes. All-female gate agents. Only females in the control towers communicating with the plane. Only female passengers on board. The flight was intended to build encouragement for young females to pursue work in the aviation industry once they complete their education. Delta says that 5% of their pilots are female. And last year, out of the new hires, only 7.4% of them were female. So they're hiring more females, but males still far outnumber female pilots 19 to 1. How do you feel about females in the cockpit, Tess? Seems like we've grown up in a world where men are in the cockpit, women are the flight attendants singing to the service of passengers. Are you in favor of upending that trend? Absolutely, yeah. I want to see more women in the cockpit for sure. Yeah, I feel like so much of it is just a learned behavior. When you're a child and you're taken on a plane and you see a man in the captain suit, you're like, oh, I guess that's just what boys do. And if you see a female as a flight attendant, you're like, oh, I guess that's what women do. I think if you had a girl and you brought her on a plane and she saw a female pilot, she would look at that and be like, I can do that someday. Definitely. I think it's easier to envision yourself doing something in life if you've seen it done before. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, definitely. I think female Americans are going to grow up in a world where they think they can be president because Hillary Clinton ran for president and they saw her on debates and they're like, females can be president. Eventually, we're going to have a female president. I think we can thank Hillary Clinton. And maybe we can thank Delta Airlines for more female pilots, too. I hope so. I'm sure that was a very smooth flight. Yeah. In September 2019, a small plane flew over a gender reveal party in Texas, dropping 350 gallons of pink water on the party below before proceeding to enter into a stall which it couldn't recover and crashed into a nearby field. Both occupants of the plane, the pilot and passenger, were luckily unhurt. Tess, do you think we should encourage people to explore more safe options for gender reveal parties? (laughs) Yes, definitely. What is it with gender reveals being absolute epic fails people are going crazy it's like why don't you just order a cake and people cut into the cake and it's either like blue or red it's like like the universe is trying to tell us it doesn't matter yeah it's not that important so have your kid pick in arizona a gender reveal box exploded and caused a forty-seven thousand acre wildfire that did eight million dollars in damage how do you feel about that more of the same yeah so people with your gender reveal parties dial it down a notch please Remember earlier this year when we were all bummed out that Wow Airlines, a cheap, low-cost airline that flew internationally to Iceland, went under and declared bankruptcy? I do. In fact, we took Wow to Iceland and we loved it. Yeah. Well, a former vice president of operations at Wow Airlines, Arnar Mar Magnusson, has announced that he's starting a new low-cost airline in Iceland called Play. Play's fleet will consist of six Airbus A321 planes and will start flying sometime in 2020. If you go to flyplay.com, you can sign up to win one of 1,000 tickets the new airline's giving away. What do you think about that news? Are you happy to have a new low-cost option to Iceland? Definitely. I'm very excited, although I I think both you and I could have come up with a better name than Play. So Tess is not into Play. But you like the idea of low-cost flights to Iceland. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah, I think it's integral to Iceland's economy. People need to get to Iceland so they can spend money on lodging and restaurants. If we have a cheap way to get to Iceland, we will come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I I found it really interesting that it's so cheap to get there, but then once you get there, it's, it's really very expensive. It's pricey, but it's not the end of the world. If you can get there for cheap, you have more money to spend on food. That's true. JetBlue announced this week that they will be the first airline to serve hard seltzer to their passengers. JetBlue will be serving up Truly, a hard seltzer product from the Boston Beer Company, to anyone 21 and older that's itching for an adult beverage in the form of flavored bubbly water. Tess, we all know you love JetBlue. Does this make you love them a little bit more? Yeah, I think that they're very um, up on the latest trends and hard Bubbly water seems to be one of them. Yeah, I like JetBlue. You get hard bubbly water and you get, you know, that little pantry where you can get your own snacks. Yeah, they're very woke, as the kids like to say. Southwest Airlines has been testing dual boarding in certain markets across the United States, trying to decrease the amount of time people spend boarding and exiting their aircrafts. In Sacramento, for instance, you can board the front of the plane via a jet bridge 
or exit a nearby door close to the gate and board the back of the plane via stairs outside in the fresh air. Southwest says that their average boarding process takes 42 minutes, and they're researching to see if they can cut down on this time, thus saving money for the company by being more efficient with their planes and lead to a more comfortable experience for their passengers. Tess, do you like this idea? Do you give it your stamp of approval? Absolutely. I think Southwest, if JetBlue is the trendy one, Southwest is the customer-friendly one. It's customer-friendly and always very economical. Like I feel the best thing about Southwest that I love is that you can cancel your flight at any time and you just get a credit. You don't get punished. Me too. I I like that. Pretty nice. I like the idea of getting a little fresh air before you get on the plane. I think I'd be the person that goes out on the tarmac and goes up the uh, stairs. They've also noticed that when people do that, when they go outside and go up the stairs, the selfies go off. Everybody's doing selfies. Yeah, Everyone feels very presidential. Yeah, everybody's like, I'm special, this is unique, I'm outside. That's another aspect that I think is cool, is it's just something kind of different. Who doesn't like different? Right, yeah. There's always a many a photo op to be had when you're walking up to a plane in the fresh air. Yeah, it looks cool. You look cool, you're going somewhere, let everybody know. Well, I think that's going to do it for the 12th episode of the Plane Crash Podcast. Thank you to Tessa Andrade for joining us. Do you have anything you want to say to the people before we leave? No, oh, thank you for having me, Michael. Thanks for always being on the show. I hope you all out there are having a good day. I hope you're making the world a better place because you're here. I hope you're helping your family and friends move. If you see someone with a flat tire, I hope you pull over and you're a good person and you help them change their flat tire. Hold the door open for someone if you see them coming up behind you. Smile at some people you pass on the street that you don't even know. I'm going to try and be kind myself and work hard and get you a new episode very soon. Thanks again to uh, everyone for listening. I love you guys, and I hope you have a good week. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.